Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. This morning, it's all about updates. We get an update from Hawaiian Volcano Observatory geophysicist Jim Koahikawa about the water that has now been observed in the bottom of Halemaumau Crater. We also get an update from some of the people who work atop Mauna Kea and what the status is now that some of them are able to get back and start observing again. Remember that if you prefer to listen to Island Conversations as a podcast, you may download Download it or listen online at kwxx.com or at b97hawaii.com. We're going to start this morning with our discussion with Jim Koahikawa, which we recorded on Friday, August 16th. Jim Koahikawa, aloha. Hi. I'm really glad you have time to talk to us because I wanted to ask you about the water in the Halemaumau crater. A couple of weeks ago, it was reported that at the bottom of what is now Halemaumau, which has actually changed a lot in appearance, since the volcanic explosions of the summer of 2018. There's water at the bottom of that crater. Give us information about it. How was it discovered? What do you think it is? Just tell us things about it. Well, the the water was reported first uh, about three weeks ago now uh, by a helicopter pilot that was actually flying a LIDAR mission for us. And LIDAR is the use of uh, laser uh, flown from a helicopter or a fixed wing, and they fly over terrain, and they uh, they get the distances from the laser shot to the ground, and that allows us to make very accurate maps of the ground surface. So anyway, they were flying the summit area to make a map for us, and the pilot happened to notice a very murky green area down at the bottom of this very deep pit, which is now about 1,500 feet or so deep. And so he reported back to us, and uh, of course that piqued our interest. We haven't noticed water down there before in almost two centuries. So uh, we paid much more attention to it. Uh, we tried to figure out how we might be able to see that from the rim. We've posted a webcam there now, so you can watch it. And we've also had people out there measuring it with a, a handheld laser rangefinder to see whether it's changing or if it's changing up by how much. But it's, it's certainly very interesting. How much water do you think is down there? Well, the last time I calculated it, which was probably maybe almost a week ago, it was about 1,000 cubic meters, which works out to about 227,000 or so gallons. That sounds like quite a bit of water to me. From what I've seen in the photos, it looks like it's increasing. Where's that water coming from, do you think? Well, the water level is rising slowly. We can't get real accurate measures of how fast it's moving, but we have a couple of indirect measures that suggest it's rising at about maybe a yard a week. The water is there possibly for two reasons. One is that it's just rainfall collecting down there, in which case it should wax and wane with rainfall. And the other is that this is actually the water table that was there at a higher elevation, but got dragged down by the, with the collapses of 2018. It is now just 
basically rebounding after the collapse and is coming up to its former level slowly. So far, because the water level is rising steadily and that it's colored so it's not like pure rainwater, the evidence is sort of leading towards groundwater rebounding from the 2018 collapse. But we, you know, we don't yet have accurate measures, as I said, of the depth and how fast it's rising and all that. But we, at least from our observations, it looks like it's steadily rising as opposed to going up and down with rainfall. The water is kind of a milky green color from what I've observed. What are the implications of that? Well, you know, until we get a sample of it, we can't say for sure, but there are many lakes within volcanic craters around the world that have a similar color, and we think that's due to absorption of uh, sulfur from sulfur gas. So, you know, we've been measuring very low sulfur dioxide emission rates in the crater since the collapse last year. And so one possibility is that some of that SO2 is being scrubbed out by the water. It's soluble in water. So the water may be very acidic because of that sulfur content. We are working on uh, some proposals for getting a water sample, either with a helicopter or a drone, and we're working very closely with the National Park to see what will work for everybody. Okay, well, I also understand the water is hot. Tell us about that. Yeah, again, we can't get right down to the water to measure the temperature, but uh, we do have an infrared camera that we've been using, for example, to track when the lava lake was moving or when lava flows were active. And so we, uh, I think a week or so ago, we trained that on the water lake. And it appeared to have a temperature of about 70 degrees centigrade or about 160 Fahrenheit. That may be a minimum temperature because the water is so far away from the camera. There's some absorption in the atmosphere, but it's clearly hot. Well, it's interesting. You know, when I lived in California, there were hot springs through Northern California that actually had been turned into commercial enterprises because you could take hot baths and there were mud baths and things like that. So, I don't know, the water, the water can be hot coming from volcanoes. Now, you mentioned you would like to get a sample. And I guess the first question is, is there any physical possibility that a person could go down there? Uh, no, the sides of the crater are very steep and it's all debris. So there's definitely no way that a human could make it down there and even less of a possibility to get out. So we're not even thinking about that. We are thinking about remote means and we are still exploring those. So what would the possibility be of either using a drone if the National Park permitted it or using a helicopter? Because 1,500 feet down sounds pretty far down for either one of those to be able to negotiate. But talk a little bit about that. We've consulted with both uh, drone operators and helicopter operators, and it, it does seem like it's feasible with uh, certain under certain conditions and with certain conditions about how to do it. And I believe we're having a meeting with the National Park in a couple of weeks to discuss all of these possibilities. It does seem physically possible, but you know, there are going to be risks associated with it. For the drone, there may be some possibility that the drone will not be able to come back, which sort of defeats the purpose of getting a sample. With the helicopter, it's going to require a long lead from the helicopter down to the sampling bottle, and that will have to be weighted appropriately so it doesn't get picked up in air turbulence. Anyway, we were sort of trying to think these out, working with the people that know the most about the methods. 
I had read that never before in recorded history had there been water at the bottom of Halima'oma'u, but you mentioned just a couple minutes ago that maybe there was a couple of centuries ago. And I know that one of the things you like to do is go back and look at old Hawaiian writings, old publications, to see what was documented in writing or even orally to give you scientists more information about what happened prior to the founding of Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, prior to Thomas Jagar coming along and keeping more detailed scientific records. So what have you been able to find out about any water that might have existed at the bottom of the crater in any times? Well, as you know, Don Swanson has been working on very detailed studies about how the caldera formed and what its history was, what happened from deposits that are around the caldera. And he found that the caldera formed several centuries ago by collapse, a big collapse, and it was followed by probably three centuries of intermittent explosive eruptions. And studying those eruptions, while working with other colleagues, he found that uh, one possible culprit for why some of the eruptions were explosive at least was that the magma that was coming up from depth into the caldera may have come up so quickly into a shallow water lake that the magma fragmented and produced these very big explosions as water was flashing into steam. And so that's why we are not quite sure what hazards are posed by just the existence of the water lake. We know that there has been a a shallow groundwater table under the summit for probably centuries now. And even in the last two centuries, there have been many eruptions that occurred within the caldera that have not been explosive. And so we think that based on those older studies and then based on what we know of the recent history of Kilauea, that two things must occur before eruptions will go to explosivity, big explosivity, and that is that magma rises very quickly, which we haven't seen before the last two centuries, and this water lake. And so now we're, we're getting a water lake, but that still isn't enough to have explosive eruptions. We still need that rapid magma rise. Okay, well, so last summer, in the summer of 2018, there were a number of what people called explosions at the summit. But it wasn't really earthquakes, it wasn't really eruptions as we know them. So help us understand how those that happened last in the summer of 2018 would be different from what you're talking about. Because when you say there haven't been explosions, how are what happened last summer, summer of 2018, different from what might happen now? Uh, When I mentioned big explosions for three centuries, these were very big explosions that dispersed ash for miles. Um, We have had small explosions, and the ones that occurred early in the 2018 activity were relatively small, even though they ejected ash up to, we think, maybe 20 or 30,000 feet. You know, there was a lot of debris formed in the collapsing in 2018, and we think that debris may have blocked gas emissions. And so those were essentially gas being trapped and exploding out and throwing up uh, debris with it. Um, the explosions uh, that involve water are much different and they could be potentially more dangerous simply because you could take an amount of water, you instantly put it in contact with very hot magma, it flashes into steam, and that's an expansion of, uh, I don't know, a thousand times in volume in an instant. Those are very powerful explosions and some that we 
probably haven't witnessed in uh, at least the history of Kilauea. Okay, so to be real clear though, are the scientists concerned that there could be that kind of really disastrous explosion? Because some of the headlines I've seen since the water was spotted made it sound like we were imminently waiting for a very explosive eruption, but I don't get that sense from you and the other scientists, but let's just make sure we're crystal clear about what to expect. Well, we expect the water lake to keep rising, and until we have some information about very rapid magma set, we're not very worried. Uh, the history of Kilauea, as I mentioned, has been um, relatively moderate magma rise events, so we might get some fountaining. Most of those eruptions started relatively slowly. Even, for example, Kilauea Iki, which had those very high fountains back in 1959, started out as a fissure eruption, just uh, pushing lava down into the deepest part of that crater. And so that kind of moderate magma rise or magma ascent velocities probably are slow enough that any water that is contacted will just slowly turn into small amounts of steam and basically insulate itself from the effect from mixing with more groundwater. I know that there's a lot of study going on still from the summer 2018 eruption along with all the scientific studies you're doing from this water that's now at the bottom of Halima'uma'u. Is there anything specific you'd like to learn? Well, we'd like to be sure where this water comes from. You know, like I said, the evidence so far leads heavily towards groundwater. We have a research drill hole that is about uh, half a mile south of Halimau'u. And uh, so we know the water level in that well. And the lake will have to rise another 50 or so yards to be in hydraulic equilibrium with the water. So if our hypothesis is correct that it's groundwater that's rebounding, that lake should rise to about that same level and then stall or stay there. Hopefully by that time we'll have at least one analysis of a water sample and be able to confirm how much sulfur it has, for example, and how acidic, you know, those lakes tend to be very acidic, um, and whether it has anything else of interest um, in the water. Okay, Jim Kwahikau, thanks for the update on the water, but I want to ask you a couple of additional questions. One is a general update on Kilauea Volcano. For the last several months, we've been observing inflation at the summit. We have been able to place two uh, monitoring stations on one of the downdrop blocks within Halemaumau Crater, and uh, those have been rising very slowly. We've also been able to measure and then remeasure gravity variations on these, this area and found that gravity is also increasing, which means that there's additional mass below the gravity station, which is within that general or beneath the caldera crater, Halimau'u crater, which means there's additional mass being added beneath Halimau'u crater. So they both indicate that magma is coming back into the summit area, although it's at a rate that's much slower than it was while Puo was active, for example. So that is not something to worry about, but we obviously keep track of it. There continues to be inflation in an area just downrift of Puo in the Middle East Rift Zone. And again, it's, it's continuing. They were watching it closely, but we don't expect any more hazardous activity if these things continue at these rates. So we're, we're tracking it 
If something looks like it might develop into more serious unrest, we'll certainly raise the alert level and, and uh, inform civil defense of the public. So the Lower East Rift Zone, nothing's happening down there? Nothing's happening in the Lower East Rift Zone that we can, we can measure or sense. So uh, earthquakes seem to be at a, a normal level, except we are getting, still getting a large number of aftershocks from that magnitude 6.9 on May 4th of last year. Amazing. Aftershocks go on for a long time. Around the 3rd of July, the scientists at Hawaiian Volcano Observatory raised the alert level of Mauna Loa from the lowest level to advisory, just because you were seeing an increase in earthquakes, not big earthquakes, but just the number had increased. And I'd just like to know what the status of Mauna Loa is today. Mauna Loa is still pretty much as active as it has been in the last several months. There is still intermittent activity up near the summit and on its upper west flank. There's still inflation at the summit at previous levels. So again, we are tracking it, but it doesn't look like an eruption is imminent yet. So the scientists are not planning on raising the alert level for Mount Aloha again at this time? Uh, no, the rate of earthquakes and the rate of inflation of the summit continues at about the same rate. We keep measuring it, but no, there have been no increases yet. Jim Koahikawa, thank you so much for your time. Aloha. Oh, thanks for taking the time. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm your host, Sherry Bracken. We have just finished hearing a conversation I had with Hawaiian Volcano Observatory geophysicist Jim Koahikawa about the water that's currently in the bottom of the Halemaumau Crater. And next, we're going to hear from people who work at the observatories atop Mauna Kea to get a status on where things stand. These upcoming interviews are recorded on Thursday evening, August 15th with Doug Simons, Director of Canada-France-Hawaii Telescope, Jessica Dempsey, Deputy Director of East Asian Observatories, and Rich Matsuda, the Operations Director of Keck Observatories. But before we do that, we're going to hear from another major Big Island employer, KTA Superstores. They employ nearly 900 people all here on Hawaii Island. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised with Without added hormones or antibiotics, our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local, so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. I'm now talking to Doug Simons. Doug is the executive director of Canada-France Hawaii Telescope and an astronomer. Doug, aloha. Aloha. Great to be back. Doug, where are we now relative to getting all of the observatories atop Mount Kea into full operation? It's a different story with each telescope. CFHT was first out of the starting block Saturday night because we have a cooling system that was operational for the full shutdown. Telescopes that required liquid cryogens, um, most of those instruments are warm, and it could take anywhere from days to weeks to bring them back online. There was some information in the news that 500 people work at the summit, and that is just not my understanding. How many people actually are up at the summit of Mount Kea on a daily basis? Yeah, good question. So it's between five and 600 total that work at the observatories. Most work at the base facilities in Hilo and Waimea. Uh, Monday through Friday, it's typically 50 to 75, and at night, uh, maybe a couple dozen that are on the summit itself. 
Some have suggested there's not a big economic impact to our island from the observatories, the money they bring in, whether it is directly because of the observing time or, wow, I didn't even realize you had as many as five to 600 personnel. What do you know about the economic impact of the observatories to Hawaii Island or to the state? It's large, needless to say, with that um, number of employees. Most of their salaries go directly in the economy, obviously. So for some numbers, we have an annual combined budget of about $70 million per year across all the observatories. That money, for the most part, is coming from international federal funding agencies. We make no profit. It's impossible. We're 501c3 corporations for the most part. The economic impact on the Big Island is about $90 million, and across the state it's almost $170 million annually. I think in, in Waimea, where we are now, astronomy is the number one employer between Keck and CFHT, so you can imagine the impact on Kamuela if we were to lose astronomy. We are by far the best source of high-paying, you know, clean technology, highly desirable jobs. At CFHT, uh, for example, I think the median salary is about 100000 per year, and that's enough, you know, you you can live off 100K reasonably comfortably even in Hawaii. So these are jobs that we desperately need for our economy on the Big Island. Over the 50-year history, I'd estimate upwards of $2 billion of operations money that's been pumped into the economy. And you can imagine with inflation, another 50% or so on top of that if we can get lease renewal and a future for Hawaii astronomy here. Right now, I know there is some access back to the mountain are you dependent on the people who are the protesters who call themselves protectors? Do they have to give permission? What kind of road are you going up on? How safe is it? Give us some details since you have been up there. Yeah, so the process begins roughly 24 hours ahead of each day where we notify Office of Mauna Kea Management how many vehicles each telescope will send up the next day. That information is relayed to law enforcement who relays it to uh, the protesters. We average about 40 to 50 vehicles per day on a normal day, so quite a bit of traffic. Our primary concern is that we, we call the side like the spur road or the side road, which is actually the old, old saddle road for a portion of it. And then there's a pathway demarked by cones and reflectors across a lava field to allow us to get up and above the so-called kupuna tent. We're very concerned um, not about the safety of our staff members. They're in big, heavy SUVs. We're concerned about pedestrians. You're literally driving through an encampment. At night, and I've done this so many times, you have high wind and really thick fog. And this is a single lane path with no lights, with tents on either side of it. And you can imagine you know, the possibility of something going wrong as we're trying to navigate through that in, in pitch black with zero visibility. So we are very eager to get Mount Kay Access Road opened up, primarily as a means of separating pedestrian traffic and vehicle traffic and keeping everyone safe in the process. I have been up to the top of Mount Kea and I've been impressed by its beauty, its barrenness, its spiritual feeling and also its cleanliness. And I know the observatories do things to protect the mountain. What is it the observatories do do? Because I know a lot of folks have not been up there and there are reports that somehow the top of the mountain is not in good shape, but tell us. I think if you drive around the summit of Mauna Kea, you'll see almost nothing on the ground except for the footprints of the buildings and the natural cinder. That's a testament not only to the observatories, but uh, you know, give a nod to the rangers who are up there every single day of the week. And if they spot anything out of place, mostly left behind by visitors, and I'm not being critical of them, but you have a large number of visitors up there, and they're going to leave a, a styrofoam cup or something like that behind. So it is constantly being cleaned up 
the observatories will do it around each of our facilities. We have a ranger inspection report. I see them quarterly. And if we are not in compliance, Office of Mount Management notifies me of that, and we fix it as required immediately. So we're very you know, aggressive about maintaining the cleanliness, the site quality as much as we possibly can. And if you simply drive around up there, you'll see that there simply isn't anything on the ground other than cinder and the natural scenery outside of the telescopes themselves. It really got sort of implemented with a comprehensive management plan and the master plan in 2000 and with the start of the Office of Mauna Kea Management and the Rangers. There's always certainly the attempt to keep it as clean as possible with the observatories up there. But there's a much higher focus now under the CMP to make sure that we're in complete compliance. I'm on the Mount Cave Management Board, so I see all the reports. I have really good visibility of the, the great job that they're doing at OMKM. The proof is in the pudding. Just go up there and look for yourself. Why is it important, Doug Simons, to get the observatories back in full operation? A variety of reasons. For me as a director, one of the most important ones is our staffs. It has been a real morale uh, challenge, shall we say, um, being shut down for a month. And the thrill of being able to get on the sky last Saturday at CFHT for the first time, I haven't even read a weather report in a month because there's no point in that. And then the amazing thing Sunday morning in our night log and then the email exchange with um, Dave Tholen over at UH who verified that the, quote, virtual impactor had been reacquired. And that's an asteroid that's actually on the front page of the newspaper recently. What a hell of a way to get back into operation to verify that we don't have a killer asteroid that's about to impact us. <laughs> Need I say more about some of the incredible work going on on the mountain? Doug Simons, Canada, France, Hawaii Telescope. Thank you. Aloha. Aloha. I'm also with Jessica Dempsey, who is the Deputy Director of the East Asian Observatory, which includes the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. And we've had some really good discussions about that because the James Clerk Maxwell was instrumental in getting the image of the black hole, Povehi, last April. Aloha, Jessica. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Jessica, what's the situation with the East Asian Observatory these days at Mauna Kea? The good news is that after four weeks of downtime, we did manage to get back on sky on Sunday night. We don't have staff up at the summit right now. We are operating remotely. This doesn't mean we're at full operation. We actually had to take one of our instruments down to a non-functioning state because it went into a critical error during the time where we couldn't have access. So that's going to take us about four weeks of repair work to get back and functioning. But we have one instrument up there and on sky, so we're very pleased to get started. Well, I know you're happy, and I can see it by the smile on your face after having no access for almost a month. But what are the implications of not being able to be at full capacity for the East Asian Observatory and even some of the other telescopes atop the mountain. We have a lot of demands for our science and our instrument suite uh, takes ad full advantage of the different weather conditions, uh, the different kinds of science. So it means that our science scope is limited. It means we can't get the science for as many users as we would normally do. So we really are anxious to get back up to that fully functioning state. If you have nobody up there during the days, how is maintenance being handled? Because I know that's a pretty critical component. That's right. We are starting to get our day crews up there in the daytime during the weekdays. That is good. The access isn't as safe or consistent as we would like. But our crews are very professional and careful. So for now, they're making do. And I think that they're awesome. I know that most all of the telescopes get people from different universities around the world using those observatories, using those telescopes for their particular work. 
those people who had reservations for the time that there's been a shutdown and even now aren't getting to observe, what happens to those people? Do they somehow get priority to go back on or do they go to the end of the line again? Help us understand the implications. It does depend on the observatory. We had to cancel a number of our observers, scientists who are going to be coming out from a range of locations around the world. And of course, that's very disappointing for them. We will try and flexibly get some of their science back in the queue, but there is never a guarantee that will happen. With some of the other observatories, they apply a year, sometimes six months in advance, and they won't get that time back. Uh, across the observatories, dozens of students have missed their observing time, and that will affect their graduation, and that one's one that personally you know, really hurts for me. You know, I was going to ask, and I've not yet asked, Devin Chu is a young man who is getting his PhD. He's from Big Island. His goal was always to come back and work on the mountain, and I know he had observing time. He and his advisor came over, and they could not do their observing. That's right, and they won't get that time back, you know, and there was 2,000 hours across the observatories of lost time. About a year and a half worth of discoveries were lost across all of the telescopes, and we'll just really never know, in some cases, what was missed. So it's been pretty hard, but our staff are pleased that we're starting to get back moving again. What does somebody do if they are a student and they had observing time and their graduation, their thesis, their PhD thesis is based on that? What happens then? Do they, well, what happens then? We'll make the best accommodations we can. I mean, students are our priority. Getting our next generation of scientists up and running is one of our driving motivations. So I hope that in every case we can find a way to get them their science in time for them to be able to put a good showing forward for their graduation. Anything else you'd like to add, Jessica? We finally got our instrument, Namakanui, as named by Professor Larry Kimura, up to the summit four weeks late. And so our staff are getting very nervous uh, because we have a very narrow window to get it working before the next round of Event Horizon Telescope observations. So it was a great relief to get it there. And uh, it's like kind of unpacking Christmas present for our staff. They're really thrilled to get him up there and uh, so we're going to be working really hard and looking forward to doing that next round of black hole hunting. So that's what this new instrument will allow you to do? That's right. It's going to be four times more sensitive than the one that took the image of Povehi. So we're going to be able to make even greater impact in this next round of Event Horizon Telescope observations and we're really excited. Define Event Horizon Telescope one more time for us, please. Sure, and this is because you need a telescope the size of a planet in order to image a black hole. And so we connect eight, actually it's going to be nine telescopes this time across the world in order to make this planet-sized telescope in order to go hunting for these tiny black holes. Jessica Dempsey, thank you so much. Aloha. Thank you for having me. Rich Matsuda is the Operations Director for Keck Observatory. Aloha, Rich. Aloha. Rich, what's the current status of Keck Observatory and its being able to be fully back online? We're coming back into operations. After having been off sky for about four weeks, we had to put a lot of our infrastructure and instrumentation into a hibernation mode. We're working our way back out of that. We observed for the first time on Tuesday evening with both Keck 1 and Keck 2 telescopes doing science again, which is great to be back on sky. But because about half our instrumentation was put into this safe mode during the four-week layoff, we've had to bring them back slowly, cautiously, and we're limited by the amount of equipment we have to bring things back online. So rather than doing it all at once, we have to do it in a serial fashion. So it'll take about another week and a half, two weeks to get us back all the way up to online 
to where all our capabilities are, are back in operational state. What happens to those people who had observing time, which I know has to be reserved months or longer in advance, if they lost the observing time during this last month, what's their situation? Do they get it back? Do you bump other people or what? Basically, most of them will lose the time. If we have any engineering time that we can give back to scientists, we do, but we need that engineering time to test the telescope, make sure it's working. We regularly have to do these kind of tests to keep it in optimum condition. If there's any of that that we don't absolutely have to use, we'll give it back to scientists, but I would say 90 to 100% of them will lose their time. I've taken a look now at the road that the scientists and the engineers and technicians have to use, and it is next to the existing Saddle Road, Daniel Kanoe Highway, but it really, in my observation, looks like sort of a rapidly, hastily put together cinder road. It doesn't look great, but tell me how it's working for you guys, because I know you have to take instruments up and such. So tell us just a little bit about that. Sure. So as far as getting people up and down, we use that side road that you referred to. At the very end, there's a pretty narrow path over lava, and that was improved slightly with the Department of Transportation. They put cones and markers to mark out the lane, which made it a little more safe. They put down some gravel as well. So we've been um, having our crews go through there. It's largely been cordial. The main aspect we're worried about is the safety of the public. So you're having 30 or 40 observatory vehicles going through that pathway on a daily basis. And there's people parked, camping, walking in that area. While the interactions are fine, we're just worried about the possibility of an accident, which would be a worst case scenario for anyone. As far as critical equipment, there have been a couple cases now where we've had to use the, um, the main access road. And so what we do is we ask Office of Monarchia Management to notify law enforcement who notifies and makes an arrangement. We have to show up at a certain time and then we're allowed to enter the main access road, but we have to go around the Kupuna tent onto the shoulder to get around that and then get up the hill. And we've done that a few times now successfully. So are you saying that you have to get permission from the protesters who are blocking the road to actually get up to the mountain? Basically, it's been a one-way communication. So we inform the office of Monica Management, and then we're told, okay, you, you can come up. I do not really know exactly the details of what happens between law enforcement and the leaders of the protest. Rich Matsuda, thank you so much. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha. And that's your Island Conversations for today. I'm Sherry Bracken. I'll see you next week for another Island Conversations when we speak with Jim Wayband and Jason Uecki about business plans. Are you thinking of starting a business? Jason and Jim will talk about what a business plan is, how you write one, and about a special competition here on the Big Island of Hawaii that awards $25,000 to a really outstanding business plan. Until then, please, let's all live and drive with Aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.